The Republican Party has two major problems on its hands right now. An ungovernable House majority that is quickly descending into chaos and a party standard bearer facing 91 felony counts who is doing everything he can to get the case against him thrown out of the courts. There are big developments in both of those stories, and we are going to get to all of them this hour. But if there is one person who embodies the dual crises facing the GOP right now, the dual problem of House chaos and alleged Republican criminality, it is this guy, Congressman George Santos, a serial fabulist who remains in the House of Representatives despite being charged with 13 counts of fraud, money laundering and theft. He's still there. And today, the former treasurer for Santos's campaign pleaded guilty to a federal conspiracy charge. That staffer admitted to having made up fake campaign donations for Santos's campaign. And that conspiracy charge is part of the broader case against her boss, George Santos, who has been accused of crimes that range from defrauding donors to falsifying official paperwork to lying to the government in order to get pandemic aid. So the fact that this Santos campaign official is now admitting to some part of that alleged scheme, that is bad news for George Santos. And yet Congressman George Santos remains a member in good standing of the House Republican Conference. He has not been publicly denounced by a majority of his Republican colleagues the way that, for example, Democratic Senator Bob Menendez has and continues to be by members of his party for his criminal indictment. I mean, if anything, George Santos is at the height of his power in this Congress, because for the second time in less than a year, Republicans need George Santos and they need his vote in particular to stem the chaos in their caucus. Whoever the next Republican speaker is, that person is going to have to court the likes of George Santos at the same moment that his former staffer is striking a plea deal with federal prosecutors. The GOP is so fractured that it governs itself on a knife's edge as to who can actually corral this Republican mess into something resembling a governing majority. Well, that is anybody's guess at this point. And today we learn that Donald Trump is considering a visit to the U.S. Capitol early next week, right in the middle of the Republican race for speaker. It will be the first time Trump has visited the Capitol since January 6th, 2021. A lot has changed and a lot hasn't. Trump claims he's making the visit because he wants to help unify the party, which he is openly musing may require him to become speaker himself. Today, Trump told Fox News Digital, they have asked me if I would take it, it being the speakership, for a short period of time for the party until they come to a conclusion. I'm not doing it because I want to. I will do it if necessary, should they not be able to make their decision. As preposterous as this sounds, as much as Trump at the Capitol should be a glaring reminder of what happened the last time he was there, Republican lawmakers have been cheering Trump on. This is Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeting today. If Trump becomes Speaker of the House, the House chamber will be like a Trump rally every day. But we have already seen what it looks like when a Trump rally comes to the U.S. House chamber. We saw it when a Trump rally marched to the Capitol with Trump signs and smashed through windows and barricades and paraded through the building chanting, hang Mike Pence. That's what it looks like. Kevin McCarthy's failure as speaker was in large part due to his courtship of the MAGA base, his deference to the hard right. 
And in the wake of that spectacular failure, the Republican Party is courting the head of the MAGA movement. They're inviting the January 6th guy back into the building. I mean, for anybody looking for a course correction here, it looks like it's going to be a long wait. Today at a Republican campaign stop in Michigan, NBC News asked Republican primary voters what they thought of Kevin McCarthy's ouster. And boy, did they make it clear Kevin McCarthy wasn't radical enough. He caved in sending more money over to uh, Ukraine. Ukraine. So basically, he seems like a typical political crook. We can't be siding in with these liberal policies. We just can't. We, we have to stand up to that, and, and otherwise we're going to lose our country. If he was, um, you know, working a little bit too cozy with the Democrats, and I'm all for him being voted out. A bit too cozy with the Democrats? How and where did Kevin McCarthy, the person who launched an impeachment inquiry into President Biden and blamed a near government shutdown on Democrats, how did Kevin McCarthy become somehow a tool of the left? Here's a clue. The morning after ousting McCarthy, Congressman Matt Gates walked a few blocks down from the Capitol to the basement recording studio that belongs to Steve Bannon to claim victory and to rally support from the MAGA movement. Well, first, I want to say the posse won and the posse was attacked last night. What they're trying to say is they're afraid of your collective agency. They, they are worried that your ability to act as um, as a force in American politics can become more important than the big steak dinners and the lobbyist fundraisers and the favors that are traded back and forth. That is the Republican Party that Donald Trump is returning to. One that is mired in dysfunction and anger and chaos and paranoia. And it is clear now that the threat is inside the building. They have breached the Capitol in more ways than one. Joining me now is Tim Miller, former communications director for the 2016 Jeb Bush campaign and writer at large at The Bulwark and Charlie Sykes, podcast co-host also at The Bulwark, the great Bulwark and author of How the Right Lost Its Mind. Thank you, gentlemen, both for joining me tonight. Um, Charlie, let me ask you just what you make of Trump positioning himself as a, quote, unifying figure that the Republican Party needs to have as Speaker of the House. Yeah, as strange as it is, obviously, we have not yet reached uh, peak political crazy here. I mean, the idea of the Donald Trump as as a unifier, uh, it is a preposterous idea. But but as you pointed out, what an alignment of what an alignment of the stars, the man who incited the attack on the Capitol, returning to the Capitol uh, to see his handiwork, you know, to see how absolutely ungovernable it has been. Look, the Republicans are faced with a an unenviable uh, problem, uh, trying to figure out how to govern in this particular environment with the Jackal Caucus, with Donald Trump looming over all of this, is really kind of a political Rubik's Cube for morons. There, There's no solution. There's no way in which they're going to come out of this um, you know, more sane or more rational or getting back to some sort of normalcy. And this is this is what they are bringing into 2024. So you're absolutely right. Um, you know, anyone who thinks that, you know, we are about to see some sort of a return to normal uh, American politics, that is just not going to happen. And next week is going to be it's going to be wild, even by the standards of the of the last year. 
Well, right. Be there will be wild part two, Tim. I mean, what do you think the presence of Trump at the Capitol does to the speaker's race? On one hand, do you think it'd be a, a very helpful reminder of what happens when you give power to Trump and Trumpism? And yet, on the other hand, I, I kind of think it's going to it's it's like, you know, the, he's like, is it Rasputin? I mean, he just he conjures this spell that that the party seems to fall under. And I wonder if it informs who they ultimately pick for speaker, assuming it's not Donald Trump. Yeah, for sure. I, I think it's him reasserting dominance. You know, there's a lot of areas in his life where he's lost control right now, multiple courtrooms across the country, but he still very much has control over the Republican Party. And, and I think that showing up uh, is an opportunity for him to demonstrate that in the most visible way possible. And, and and I think that he's right about the fact that he, you know, would be able to put his thumb on the scale and, and probably not be speaker himself, but, but support whoever it is, Jim Jordan or whatever from the MAGA Jackal Caucus, as, as Charlie called it. You know, and, and it recalls for me, uh, you know, Alex, I feel like, you know, a broken record, but you remember that old quote from after um, after the election, what's the downside for humoring him for this little bit of time? For some reason, these Republicans, the Kevin McCarthy, the old guard establishment Republicans thought that they could make this deal with the devil. And then when he lost in 2020, he would go away and they'd get to move on with their lives. But like, that's not how deals with the devil work. You know, and Donald Trump is once again, just like he did on January 6th, just like he did endorsing all those lunatics in 2022, and, and, and he'll do it one more time when he goes to the Capitol next week. You know, he's saying, you still got to pay up, and, mm. and he's going to be there to accept his payment. I do wonder, Charlie, whether um, this sort of poison runs deeper than just deal-making. The New York Times is out with a piece about how Steve Bannon, in many ways, helped orchestrate the ouster of Kevin McCarthy by effectively poisoning the well, poisoning the posse, uh, which is to say the right-wing and the yeah. right wing, not just in Congress, but voters and listeners to Steve Bannon's podcast, poisoning them against McCarthy, who he deemed sort of an establishment rhino stooge of the Democratic Party. Um, in other yeah. seasons, one might say, who cares what Steve Bannon is doing? But the Times piece points this out, and I'll just read you a short excerpt. In past decades, right-wing rebels on Capitol Hill have encountered trouble getting real traction, shunned by lobbyists and big-money political action committees, excluded from leadership suites in the Capitol, and disregarded by Fox News. But with the help of Mr. Bannon, who streams live for four hours every weekday, Mr. Gates and others don't need to rely on any of that. They can find their money by spewing nonsense on the Bannon airwaves, and they have an audience, and they have attention, and that's all they need. What do you think about that, Charlie? Well, that, that, that's exactly right. You know, and Tim's written a whole book about this. Um, you know, the, the water was poisoned a long time ago over the last uh, five or, or six years. You have this uh, vast um, right wing media ecosystem that thrives on stirring up outrage, convincing the base the, that uh, they need to be angry, that they're being betrayed, that somebody is not being loyal enough and they keep ratcheting it up. So what Bannon represents is just one aspect of all of this. And, and ultimately, you know, this is a leadership problem, but it's also a followership problem. You know, as as you you know illustrated earlier, there are a lot of people out there in the, the primary electorate um, who uh, have no problem with this kind of chaos and this kind of dysfunction. And Donald Trump feeds on this as well. And that's the problem that the majority of House Republicans have to deal with is if they want to, 
elect somebody who is not completely crazy, if they want to elect somebody who is not a complete lunatic, they're going to have to deal um, with this, this not just the, the eight members of the caucus, but this entire um, media ecosystem, which is devoted to you know passing out the, the, the meth of outrage on a regular basis, and, and Donald Trump, who will insist um, on this, this sort of thing. I mean, Donald Trump, you, you know, like in many ways, I agree with Tim. You know, this is an assertion of dominance, but it really is, in many ways, the worst nightmare for House Republicans. Mm. And it is <laughs> the fondest wish of Democrats and the Biden campaign to basically Trumpify the entire Republican Party and make it absolutely clear that Donald Trump owns all of this chaos and this dysfunction and corruption. Well- And thank you for pointing out the sort of role that the Republican electorate has in this. And Tim, I'd love to talk with you more about that because the incentive structure is all messed up. I mean, it feels like the Republican electorate not only wants the chaos, but expects the chaos. And so when the chaos unfolds, it's not a source of shame and indignation. They're either like more of that or what else is new? And so, you know, Jim Jordan as speaker seems entirely plausible to that group of people. Oh, for sure. I, you know, this is the thing that a lot of folks, you know, I think on the coast miss about what's happening with the Republican Party is, you know, there's that old trope that like a lot of Republicans are like, I, I like Donald Trump for the policies, except but uh, but not the tweets. You know, I, I just wish he'd have control over his Twitter feed. Uh, there's a big group of the Republican base, maybe not a majority, but really close to it. 35, 40, 45 percent of the party that's there for the chaos, there for the tweets, there for the cruelty. Like they like this stuff. And so exactly. you might think that, you know, the the fact that the Republican Party can't govern themselves, you know, might make Republican viewers of Fox and viewers of Steve Bannon's podcast embarrassed and upset. But for many of the viewers, they're like, no, good. You know, we want to tear this whole thing down. And so that, you know, b- b- makes things very challenging for the Republicans who want to do the right thing. I think there's a dwindling number of them, you know, but I think many of them feel uh, really trapped by their own voters. What do you think the implications are for the actual speaker's race, Charlie? I mean, is it a foregone conclusion that it's going to be someone in the radical wing of the of the party's base? Most likely. But again, this is this is the dilemma that that in order to get 218 votes, you either have to get the votes of the Matt Gates Jackal Caucus or you have to get some Democratic votes. Now, in order to get the, the Matt Gates Caucus, you're going to have to continue doing what what Kevin McCarthy did, which is to make one surrender, one concession after another to the Taliban wing of the party. Um, and in order to get Democratic votes, you're going to have to strike some sort of a grand bargain that would absolutely outrage the right wing base and the bannons of the world and 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 Don and Donald Trump. So the question is, how do you get to 218 votes? And you know, I, the conventional wisdom would 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 suggest that it's going to be someone like a Steve Scalise. But but who knows? Um, my only prediction was, uh, you know, strap in, break out the popcorn because it's going to be long. It's going to be ugly. Ugh, that's not popcorn eating footage for me. I just want to put all food aside watching the degradation of our two-party system. The Jackal Caucus. Someone put that on a mug, please, somewhere. Tim Miller and Charlie Sykes, it's great to have you both on the program. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks, Alex. We have lots to talk about this evening, like a victory. Yes, a victory for representational democracy as a Republican effort to keep Democrats out of power in Alabama fails and just in time for next year's election. Plus, Donald Trump may have retreated to his Florida Beach Club, but his lawyers are keeping busy, working to keep Trump out of multiple court cases while he is running for president. That is next.
desktops on TVs streaming game console consoling smart thermostat set for cuddle time doorbell camera oh my package is here fast reliable able to power tons of devices inside your home at once all systems go you are clear for takeoff this is xfinity internet wi-fi built to wow and watch the short film the aviators now playing at xfinity.com restrictions apply actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. In New York today, it was day four of Donald Trump's civil fraud trial. And for the first time, the former president was not in the courtroom to watch or to mutter under his breath. Instead, he was at home in Florida doing Trump stuff. But it appears that Trump's lawyers are working overtime, doing everything they can to either postpone or dismiss four, uh, four of their, their clients' five pending legal cases. Four out of their clients' five pending legal cases. In the New York civil fraud case, Trump's team announced that tomorrow they will be requesting a stay pending appeal. Exactly what part of the trial they want to put on pause is still anyone's guess, but we should know by tomorrow. Another set of Trump's lawyers filed a motion to dismiss the Manhattan DA's criminal hush money case against Trump, calling the charges politically motivated and marred by legal defects. In the federal criminal case involving Trump's storage of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, today his lawyers asked Judge Aileen Cannon for that trial to start after the 2024 presidential election, citing the many other trials Trump faces and the impossibility of being, quote, in two places at once. And then in the other federal criminal case involving Trump's efforts to overthrow the 2020 election, Trump lawyers are trying to get that case dismissed altogether. They argued Trump's efforts to subvert, subvert democracy were actually, quote, efforts to ensure election integrity and are therefore protected under presidential immunity. Joining me now to give her take on the validity of all this is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama and, of course, co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast. Joyce, thank you for being here. I I am not a lawyer, which I say, I think, every hour of this program, but I did read highlights from this argument Trump's lawyers were making and found myself chuckling. I, I wonder what you thought about the assertion that Trump has absolute immunity in Jack Smith uh, and his his federal election case because the actions Trump took in and around the election were within the outer perimeter of his presidency and uh, his actions to overturn the election were at the heart of his official responsibilities as president. What do you make of that? Right. So, Alex, I think they're making the argument that they have to make here, because obviously stealing an election does not fall within a president's core duties. So they've crafted this argument using sterile language to describe the allegations against Trump. And instead of representing it in terms of the conspiracies that the government charges to defraud the United States, to obstruct an official proceeding, to deprive people of their civil rights— they say, oh, Trump was just having conversations with state officials and his vice president, and this was very normal sorts of conduct. 
that argument, I think, defies common sense and is not an argument that will succeed in front of Judge Chutkin. But that's not the goal here. Trump's lawyers are trying to set up an appeal, possibly an interlocutory appeal before trial, if they can persuade the courts it's merited. This is partially a delay game, partially a game in front of the Supreme Court of getting them to buy into this expansion of presidential power and presidential immunity. What do you think of the chances on that front, given this current Supreme Court? And I will flag, I'm not sure if people know this, but Clarence Thomas this week recused himself from a Supreme Court decision not to take up a case uh, involving the January 6th committee getting access to John Eastman's emails. John Eastman, famously the lawyer that helped hatch the the, the plot to overturn the election results. Um, does that signal anything to you? at all about how these justices are thinking about the efforts in and around the 2020 election? So I'm not holding my breath to see Justice Thomas begin to recuse wholesale from cases where he might have what people would perceive as a conflict of interest. Eastman is one of his former law clerks. That perhaps was even too direct of a, a conflict for this court to stomach. But I think looking at this issue about presidential immunity in the larger context of some conservative jurisprudence that has focused on expanding the range of presidential power, perhaps there's a way that Trump lawyers like Chris Keyes, who's a, a former Florida solicitor general and accomplished appellate lawyer, believe that they can make it palatable to the Supreme Court. This is akin to this argument. You might remember this, Alex, when Bill Barr was sort of auditioning himself for the attorney general job as Jeff Sessions' time as attorney general came to an end. He wrote this lengthy memo saying that a president couldn't be prosecuted for obstruction of, of justice because of something called the unitary executive theory that essentially yes. said if the president did it, it was OK. They will make that same sort of argument here and see if they can get some traction on appeal. So it sounds like it's not a, a foregone conclusion one way or the other, um, but that there could be hope for Trump at the Supreme Court. I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to predict. I mean, reading the argument on its merits, I would say absolutely not. This just is a non-starter of an argument. Of course, this Supreme Court has been predictable in some ways. For Trump's lawyers, though, there is the prospect of possible delay here. Mm. And if they can position this motion to delay this case, at least until after the Republican primaries and the nominating process are over, then I think they'll believe that they're serving their client. Yeah. And, and delay is the number one unspoken tactic here. Speaking of which, the it's been a minute since we've talked about what's happening in the Mar-a-Lago case, but Trump's lawyers would like to do, basically delay that case until after the 2024 election. Convenient. Um, there has been a lot of analysis in recent months about where Judge Cannon's heart lies in terms of sympathies for Trump and the, the defense he's mounting. Do you think there is a case to be made that he's just too busy to have uh, to to be a participant in a federal uh, criminal trial down in Florida? No, that's absolutely not an argument. Everyone who's a criminal defendant has a job. They have a family. They might even have prepaid pre-planned vacations. That doesn't mean you get a continuance from March to December. Maybe it means that there's a realistic need for a couple of extra weeks or for a month. But given this case and, and the very, um, you know, patent game that Trump is playing here, trying to move the trial until after the election, 
It would be a real abuse of justice for Judge Cannon to play along and give in. We will be watching to see what Judge Aileen Cannon does down there in Florida. Joyce fans, I always feel enlightened after we chat. Thank you for your time tonight, my friend. Thanks, Alex. Still to come this evening, what a Christian cell phone company has to do with the radical school boards in the state of Texas. It is an incredible NBC News investigation and is just ahead. But first, there is some good news out of the state of Alabama that offers hope for a functioning democracy and a functioning Congress. That is next. Stay with us. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Right now, all business in the House of Representatives has essentially ground to a screeching halt, which is not to say that the Republican majority in the chamber was ever really the model of functioning governance. The GOP only holds power because it won a razor-thin majority in the 2022 election. Now, part of the reason there is that the party went into the midterm election benefiting from congressional maps that were redrawn by Republican legislatures. And while we cannot know what might have happened in the alternate reality where congressional maps were not gerrymandered in Republican state houses, the very handy website Democracy Docket has identified six states where House Democrats lost at least one seat and their majority in the House because of those gerrymandered maps. Those states are Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Ohio, Utah, and Alabama. Each of these Republican-led states put maps in play that gave their party a distinct advantage in the 2022 election. Alabama's congressional map had only one majority black district out of seven, despite the fact that black residents make up 27 percent of the state's population. But today, after not one but two Supreme Court rulings and a court-appointed special master, Alabama has been forced to adopt a new congressional map with a second majority black district. And that map will be in effect for next year's election, 2024, which will in turn give Democrats a chance at picking up two of Alabama's seven congressional seats. Now, this is a major victory for voters in Alabama, but it also offers a glimmer of hope for voters in other states where Republican-drawn maps are currently being contested in the courts. If those challenges are successful, Democrats could pick up several seats in the 2024 election which could mean a Democratic majority in Congress and maybe even a functioning House of Representatives. At the very least, a more representative democracy. 
Now, while things may be looking up in Alabama, over in Texas, not so much. Our NBC news reporters have been uncovering the transformation of schools in northern Texas and the very unusual group that is behind all of that. It's coming up next. We are on a mission, and our mission is to be a, to live by the Constitution and putting him first. They do need to think that these things that they're teaching children in our schools today, they really need to think about the, the facts, right? Let's live by the facts. This is a, a, a country that was founded on God. You can go back to the Constitution, Bill of Rights, and it does. They put him first. We are just trying to live by that. When we started this program last year, we introduced you to that guy, Glenn Story. He's the one with the In God We Trust sign behind him. And he is the leader of a conservative Christian phone company that is literally taking the call to put God, or more specifically, an extreme far-right interpretation of Christianity, to put that back in schools. His company is contributing to a fringe conservative movement across North Texas. Its goal is to peddle extreme anti-LGBT conservative Christian ideology to public school students. The company has been trying to push a specific fringe Christian ideology that is increasingly popular on the far right. It's called dominionism. That is the belief that Christians are called on to dominate the seven key mountains of American life, including business, media, government, and education. And so far, this company has been pretty successful. Through its political action committee, it has managed to infiltrate North Texas school boards and consequently North Texas classrooms. NBC News correspondent Antonia Hilton went to Texas to talk with the students who were there dealing with the consequences. In pockets of North Texas, students are worried about politics and religion creeping into their classrooms. Even though we live in a conservative area, most kids are fine with learning about different identities, about learning about people of color and LGBTQ people. It's frustrating, strange, and hypocritical to see the In God We Trust signs being put up everywhere while at the same time books are being removed from our library shelves. I think I've learned more about politics in the last year than I did in my entire life. I More than you wanted to. More than I wanted to. And now that is all I can see. In my school, all I can see is people pitted against each other. Over the course of the last two years, school boards in the Grapevine, Colleyville, South Lake, and Keller school districts all passed sweeping policies, like restricting lessons on race, gender, and sexuality, the bathroom use of transgender students, and removing access to hundreds of books. Many of those school board members are being backed by a conservative Christian cell phone company, Patriot Mobile. Patriot Mobile is America's only Christian conservative wireless provider. Headquartered in Grapevine, they promise to donate some of their profits to GOP causes, and they run a political action committee called Patriot Mobile Action. One of their spiritual advisors, Pastor Rafael Cruz, is the father of GOP Senator Ted Cruz. He live streams Bible study sessions from their offices, encouraging Christians to run for local school board seats. If the righteous are not running for office, if the righteous are not even voting, then what's left? The wicked electing the wicked. Christian leaders have found success by focusing on school politics. 
One Texas evangelist and Patriot Mobile business partner, Lance Walnow, recently claimed Christians played a secret role in the elections of the neighboring town of Southlake. We did it in South Lake, Texas right now. 1,000 people went in and flooded, took over the school board, took over the, the uh, city council, took over the mayor's office. Boom. You know who it was? Christians did it. The media doesn't know it because we never said it was a church initiative. We called it a community initiative. In total, the PAC Patriot Mobile Action spent more than $600,000 supporting at least 14 Texas school board candidates in the last two years, according to campaign finance reports. Races that only a few years ago would have been mom and pop operations run with only a few thousand dollars. Patriot Mobile hired a pair of GOP consulting firms that have worked on campaigns for Ted Cruz and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, bringing sophisticated national strategies to local school politics. Do you believe that having biological males compete in women's sports? North Texas Representative Nate Schatzline represents many of the families in the Keller School District. He's also a former pastor and runs a church-based nonprofit that works to get conservative Christians elected in these communities. On the first day of the last Texas legislative session this year, he led a prayer and worship service in the Texas Capitol. He shared some of the images on social media. There is nothing more important that we could be doing than this right here, worshiping and praying in the middle of the Capitol. Throughout the session, he talked about how his faith informed his politics. Schatzlein and other conservatives voted to restrict drag performances and to hire religious chaplains as unlicensed mental health counselors in public schools. He spoke with NBC News for the new podcast, Grapevine. Do you believe in the fundamental separation of church and state? I believe that church and state in the Constitution, what was written about it was written to keep the state out of the church, not to keep the church out of the state. That belief has pushed some teachers out of public education for good. Amanda Guthrie was an award-winning world history teacher in Grapevine before she quit halfway through last school year. I think they want to defund public education, create a essentially segregated school system. And whether that be segregated by race or religion is unclear right now. I believe they want complete control over curriculums, And they ultimately want to create an uninformed and, um, I hate the term brainwashed, but manipulated voter base. Our analysis of district data shows she was one of more than 160 staffers who resigned from her district by the end of the last school year. They say that it was teachers like you who were doing the brainwashing and the indoctrinating. Is there any truth to that? Were there teachers while you were there? pushing their political ideologies, talking about gender and sex in the classroom? Absolutely not. We were trying to prepare our students, of course, for college success, but more pressingly for the AP exam at the end of the year. So I'd never discussed things that were outside of the realm of those standards. And I know that my coworkers didn't either. The Grapevine, Colleyville, Southlake, and Keller School District leaders all declined interviews. But in an email, Grapevine, Colleyville told NBC News, We review all feedback and continuously look at how we can better serve and support our employees. Southlake's Carroll School noted, As required by Texas law, we have policies and processes that respect parental rights and appropriately review curriculum. And Keller ISD saying, We believe that mutual respect and dignity build unity. 
in a time where the climate is so hostile and ever-changing when uh, when's the next policy going to come what are what have they just done now it's nice to be able to find solace in just friends you can talk to i think the student communities that have sprung up make me optimistic because i've seen so many students stepping up as leaders um, and forming a community where people feel safe This is not just happening in Texas. This is a national movement. Antonia Hilton, along with NBC News senior investigative reporter Mike Hickson-Baugh, have spent years investigating the infiltration of far-right Christian ideology into classrooms in Texas and across America. And they join me coming up next. Stay with us. I think we all just feel exhausted. We tried so hard last year to keep our teachers, who we know are so passionate about teaching, to have a safe environment in our schools and no one listened. That is Anisha Manasis. She is a high school senior in the Grapevine Colleyville School District in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And rather than focusing on the things most high school seniors are worried about, like making the honor roll or figuring out what to pack for college... Anisha is one of several North Texas students now worried about their classrooms becoming battlegrounds for right-wing politics. NBC's Antonia Hilton spoke to Anisha and her classmates about the far-right curriculum changes recently foisted on schools across North Texas. And Antonia Hilton, along with Mike Hicksonbaugh, senior investigative reporter for NBC News, they joined me now, and they were co-hosts of the Peabody award-winning podcast, South Lake, which covered how America's racial history is taught to kids in suburban classrooms and how the right has responded to it. Their new podcast, Grapevine, continues that reporting on the religious far-right targeting North Texas's public schools. Antonia and Mike, you guys are doing incredibly essential reporting. I'm so grateful for the reporting period and to join me on set to talk about this. We've talked about Patriot Mobile on this program before. Um, Antonia, if you could talk to me a little bit about this sort of unlikely partnership of a a right-wing phone company and school boards and the way in which there's, you know, the handshake between those two things and the effect on teachers and students in North Texas. Well, look, I think first for anyone who's confused about why a cell phone company is involved in this, I think your explanation of dominionism earlier will help because there's the school boards, that's the area of education, Mm -hmm. and then there's the area of business. And so it's one of the pillars in which people who are part of this movement, who believe that Christians are called to take control of these spaces, you know, it makes sense for them to do it in the business sphere as well. And then, you know, what we're seeing right now is that the folks involved in this movement they're getting a signal all the way from our national politics, from the, say, the changing shape of our Supreme Court yeah. and getting the sense that they can change things locally now. They can seize this moment. And so with a couple hundred thousand dollars, which is a lot of money locally, but not a lot of money nationally, nationally yeah, they're able to make big, big seismic shifts very quickly in local communities and completely change students' education and teachers' educational experiences and careers. Yeah. And so that's what we're seeing. I mean, Amanda Guthrie, who you just met in that story, right? This is the practical implication for her. She's in the middle of teaching a lesson about Jamestown, the colony in Virginia, and she gets to a section of a passage that she has taught before that she always felt great about. And she tells me that she realizes that the passage describes slavery as foundational, Mm -hmm. to the colony and to the founding of the United States. 
And because of laws passed and because of the new nature of her school board, she realizes I can't finish reading this. And she, she accidentally says it out loud in front of her students. And that was the moment she realized she had to quit. Wow. I mean, the, the self-censorship that these teachers have to go under under threat, you know, the, the threat of punishment, the threat of expulsion. It's so similar to what's happening in, for example, states like Florida. What's interesting here is you talk about the return on investment that a company like Patriot Mobile gets, right? For a couple hundred thousand dollars, you can te- you can reform, if you will, the way Texas public school school students learn. In the process of doing this, Mike, they're also bringing in outside consultants that are sort of familiar in national politics. Is that right? Oh, absolutely right. And we should mention, you know, we, we made many efforts to get Patriot Mobile to do interviews with us. And I even went to CPAC to try to talk with. That, the, is, that is brave work, my uh, friend. Right. And uh, they declined. So, we, we, you know, we don't have their perspective on what their motivation is and why they're doing this. But we can see that they do have a huge re- return on investment by investing in local school board races for, you know, you threw $150,000 into a local school board race yeah. where you normally would spend $5,000. You have the power to really affect change. And, you know, one of the religious scholars we spoke to said, you know, when you think about this decades long effort to, to really, since the 1960s, put prayer back in school, put God back in school. Yeah. And now the new iteration of that is put God back in school and push LGBTQ out of school. Sure. Um, if you're looking to affect that change and win the next generation, what better? And, you, and if you believe this is a spiritual battle for the heart and soul, of the sure. future of your country, what better place to fight it than in, in the classroom and a local school board? And, um, you know, our, our new podcast, Grapevine, really drills beyond that political story and into the lives of teachers and kids who are dealing with who this. are dealing with this. And so at the, at the center of the story we tell over the course of six episodes, you hear from a teacher who has been accused by a mother in this in the midst of this political climate of convincing a transgender a transgender student to become trans. Hmm. It's something we've heard from politicians like Ron DeSantis that teachers are trying to do this. Well, in this district, a mom made that allegation against a teacher and in a school district where these folks have taken control, you can see how this teacher's life was turned upside down, how the harassment um, hit her, how she was made to take books off her uh, off her shelves wow. and completely change how she teaches kids. I, I mean, there is the departure of these teachers from the system at large. What you, we talk about in this piece here, there is the way in which they have to self-censor and change their lesson plans. I do wonder about the students because, you know, in some of the reporting that I've done in Florida, the students very much see what's happening and they do everything they can through speaking out, organizing, what have you, to push back. But there is such a limitation to what they can actually accomplish when they run up against the forces of government. What's happening in North Texas and what do these students tell you about the changes that they're living through? The word I keep hearing is exhausted and defeated from students right now. They tried in 2022, just in this last cycle, to put up a bit of a fight. They were, some of them, going door to door and talking to parents, neighbors who they've known for years and tried to explain, hey, this is what's happening to our school. Uh, I can't vote yet. I'd so appreciate if you did X, Y, Z. And, you know, now they see that the, they have the board majority, that it's going to be a couple of years before they even have another shot at taking the majority in a different direction. And so they're feeling like, well, that's it. That there goes my high school, you know, experience, that my high school culture. And so what I'm hearing from this group of kids is that, you know, they've lost some faith in adults, really, that wow. the adults around them who they thought 
should shield them from politics and controversy, should allow them to be kids for just a little while longer, um, that they've messed up their job a bit. And now they're at the front lines. They're getting in front of microphones and podiums at school board meetings. And they're begging people to take action and to let them have a say in their own education. Well, and to let them actually learn what happened in history and in American society. Uh, great work, you guys. Indispensable, the work you're doing. Antonia Hilton and Mike Hicksonbaugh, thank you both. The first two episodes of their new podcast series, Grapevine, from NBC News Studios, just dropped yesterday. You can find it by scanning the QR code on your screen right now. That's our show for tonight.